Over the course of Australia's black summer bushfires, Benjamin Herder reached for a puffer he hadn't used in over 10 years. I was wondering if I was going to go to sleep and never wake up. The feeling of lying on your back, struggling to pull in a gasp of air, hearing the rasping of your lungs as you cough up this horrible, <laughs> viscousy substance. It's really something that I wouldn't wish on anybody. In this episode, we assess the real impacts of bushfire smoke on our health. And why it may be crucial health practitioners and environmental scientists collaborate in anticipation of worse bushfire seasons in the future. You're listening to Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Australia's black summer bushfires had been raging for weeks by the time Benjamin's airways became inflamed from the smoke engulfing Sydney. Like many others, he consistently checked the Rural Fire Service for updates on fire activity threatening his local Hills district in the north of New South Wales. All the time, his conditions worsening. He's one of millions quietly affected by bushfire smoke during summer. Weeks on end, the country's famous landmarks were covered in a gauze of smoke. People wore face masks in every public vicinity. In offices across major cities, workers were being evacuated due to smoke alarms triggered. And tennis players collapsed on the court as increasingly more events were cancelled. Australia's capital, Canberra, recorded the world's worst air quality and NASA published aerial footage of that same smoke gliding around the globe. An alarming 80% of the Australian population was affected. As experts tallied the deaths of the worst bushfire season in decades, the public were informed of 33 people who had perished. Just months later, that figure climbed to over 400. A study by the University of Tasmania estimates that bushfire smoke was responsible for over 400 excess deaths, more than 1,000 cardiovascular hospitalizations, 2,000 respiratory hospitalizations, and over 1,000 presentations to the emergency department for asthma during the 19 weeks of continuous fires. The extra health costs associated with premature loss of life and hospital admissions is estimated to be $2 million. Benjamin's asthma was triggered by prolonged periods of hazardous air pollution, as tiny droplets of particulate matter 2.5, otherwise known as PM 2.5, spread in the air. It meant that when I tried, would try to go to sleep at night, I would... I would just stop breathing for a little bit because all of the, the stuff in my lungs was 
clogging up my airways, and especially lying down on my back, it made it incredibly difficult to breathe. So I'd have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom and try and clear out that uh, that that lung, clear out that part of my body, so that I could actually breathe properly. David Bowman, co-author of the University of Tasmania study and professor of pyrogeography and fire science, says its exposure can have dire effects. The particles that are in the air are very, very fine. They go straight into your lungs. They can cross through the lungs into the bloodstream and then they you know, whiz around your body. And if you've got asthma or you've got heart disease, they can... Uh, trigger uh, a immune response, which can cause very bad outcomes. And, and that's why people can get very sick. If, if you've ever had a really bad asthma attack, it's very, very scary. And a lot of people like me, I guess, had already put two and two together. When they smell smoke, they know they're going to need their puffer. The New South Wales Air Quality Index deems PM2.5 levels exceeding 150 as very poor and levels above 200 as hazardous, with some studies finding there is no safe threshold for PM2.5 exposure. In Canberra, smoke reached 25 the hazardous level in just one day, while Sydney locals endured poor, very poor or hazardous air quality for 81 days last year, more than the combined total for the previous 10 years. In an Asthma Australia survey of over 1,200 people, about 66% of participants said they dealt with a reduced capacity for daily activities during the summer, with many citing new or increased anxiety and depression due to asthma symptoms. My, my sleep was suffering, my work was suffering, uh, really the overall quality of my life was being affected in, in numerous ways. Uh, some nights I would only get, you know, two to three hours of sleep because I'm kept up just going back and forth to the bathroom, back to the bed, to the bathroom, to the bed, drinking water to try and try and keep things down. It meant that because a lot of the work that I do, paid and unpaid, uh, involves using my voice. It meant I had to take regular breaks, really caused problems for my own for my own work environment. I, as much as I could, tried to stay indoors, keep myself out of the smoke, um, just trying to trying to ease the comfort. David Bowman has been researching the relationship between health and the environment for over 20 years. The journey began when the pyrogeographer started to notice thick chunks of ash landing on the front veranda of his Darwin home. One of the things I noticed exercising on my veranda is that whenever I had asthma, I would always see particles, quite big chunks of burnt grass and, and you know, charcoal that had fallen out of the sky, literally, on the veranda. And I noticed that association. The sight of smoke and ash was not uncommon during the early 2000s, with regular burn-offs spread throughout the land. The events inspired David and partner Faye Johnston an epidemiologist and co-author of the University of Tasmania study to embark on a research journey. We've ended up working with epidemiologists in Sydney um, who'd been really struggling to find a link between 
uh, bushfire smoke and human health. The researchers thought they could inform a larger Sydney study based on a smaller one they had done in Darwin. The researchers had placed Darwin's small population of about 100,000 under the microscope in what David called the ideal case study. Power, statistical power goes with population size. So a place like Sydney or Melbourne, you've got millions of people, but the problem is you've got urban air pollution and you've got episodic fire events. We started to build up very, very strong statistical relationships between the air quality and the health outcomes. The scientists started trawling through hospital records, tracking anyone suffering from respiratory symptoms like they had done in Darwin. So it started off with asthma, but then there was a recognition in the hospital records that it affected respiratory health and also, believe it or not, heart disease. And so you could actually start seeing uh, through the hospital admissions data you could see effects and then you could start seeing, you know, uh, mortality effects. So people were dying. When the team finally published their first paper in 2001, they were contributing to a very small pool of research papers published on the topic. A handful, if that maybe, you know, the number of papers who'd worked on this question was really less than 10. And now there are whole conferences devoted to smoke issues. Um, there's huge research activity occurring um, because it's becoming such a big issue in the Western United States, in Canada, Europe and South America uh, because of these increasing uh, what we call megafires or very large fires. But the researchers say there is a long way to go. David says he couldn't have achieved his results without its transdisciplinary approach. But there were a few speed bumps along the way. When I met the, the people we collaborate with, Jeff Morgan, the University of Sydney, like he was astonished that there was somebody who knew the dates of every major bushfire in, in the Sydney basin. You know, I said, yeah, of course we know them. You know, that's what we do. We, we study bushfires. You have people who are in disciplinary silos, as they're called, um, you know, they're experts either in statistical analysis, epidemiology. Why would they ever know anything about bushfires? And likewise, why would a bushfire person know anything about human health or have the, um, the schutz power, I suppose, or even the, the, the credibility to go and start manhandling hospital records and so on? You really need medically trained people. There are human ethics implications. There's all sorts of complexities with working on, on human health. And we just ended up um, inadvertently assembling the dream team. And it wasn't just between the experts. Some of the data was siloed too. Somebody who studies fire, that it's all state-based and it's very hard to get nationally consistent and also the definition of these words of hazardous or you know whatever every state has a different interpretation of how you would you know gauge or broadcast we do need much better consistent data particularly because these events are becoming you know they're crossing state boundaries
Dr. Anna Greta Hunter is a cardiologist and a clinical senior lecturer at the Australian National University Medical School. She agrees these fields can do a better job of working together. I think that University of Tasmania study is fantastic and it, you know, it really, again, it highlights how important it might be for us to start to look at the environmental determinants of health. You know, the thing about thinking about climate change is that it's a complex interdependent system and a lot of our government systems and a lot of our academic systems and in partly the way that we, our brains are wired has been towards thinking in silos and so the health system doesn't always talk to the environment system. And I think I'm making an argument to say, let's improve the communication between you know, the Department of Natural Environment and the, the Bureau of Meteorology and the Health Department so that those systems are, are talking to each other and sharing information in a way that makes a difference uh, for each one of those, those areas. She says this is becoming more urgent because of climate change. Because of that increase in variability and the increase in extremes, we're going to see that the signal uh, from the environmental impact on our health is much greater than we'd previously experienced. Um, Australia is regarded as one of the most climate vulnerable developed countries uh, on the planet. And so we will be a textbook case for the health impacts of climate change. The summer that we had in Sydney and around uh, the eastern part of Australia this year taught us all so much about air pollution. Rates of cardiovascular events in New South Wales are probably influenced as much by air pollution these days as it is by um, cigarette smoking. And we've had such an extraordinary amount of work done in our public health sense thinking about uh, cigarette smoking. We haven't done as much work thinking about these broader environmental factors, which also have a significant impact on our health and well-being. Anna Greta says plenty of platforms already collect rich data sets on health, such as the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which collects information and statistics to inform policy decisions on anything from health and community services to housing assistance. Um, we can learn all sorts of really interesting things from that site. But the bit that's missing there is environmental data and in the, this relationship between uh, environmental uh, events such as drought and fire and flooding and the health and well-being of the communities that are affected. She says one way to confront climate change is by documenting this kind of data widely, such as on death certificates. So the death certificate data really just reflects often the biology of what's happened. So um, in Australia, around about 25% of Australians die from heart disease. And we get that number from looking at the death certificate data. And that's because on a lot of death certificates, we write the main cause of death or the primary cause of death is that someone's heart stopped or that there was a cardiac event. Uh, there will be other descriptions often on a death certificate that describe underlying heart disease or lung disease or cancers. Uh, and so there, there's quite a lot of other information that's often available to us from the death certificate data. There, there is the option, I think, on, de on the death certificates as they stand at the moment, uh, that we could ex include things like exposure to bushfire smoke or exposure to a, a heat wave or other sorts of environmental factors. Anna Greta is advocating for environmental determinants, not just socioeconomic determinants of health, to be recognised. And I suppose we use that data then to, to make assumptions or to get more further information regarding the socioeconomics um, and what's called the social determinants of health. So things like education and geography, the sort of work that we do and the way in which that might impact on our, on our life expectancy or on, or on our health, on our well-being as well. And the bit that is going to need work and work quite quickly, particularly in light of climate change, is the environmental determinants. 
And we're learning this. We're learning this through air pollution. We're learning this through heat. We're learning this through extreme weather events, particularly uh, as the climate changes in one of the countries of the world which is most climate vulnerable, which is Australia. And so if our estimates of the magnitude of the health impacts of this are accurate, we're going to start to see some mortality signals come from this in the next decade. And so I think it really does warrant urgent attention from the Department of Health. I'd very much like to see an increased amount of resources for medical schools to begin to work on environmental determinants of health. I'd like to see more doctors and uh, health professionals engaged in the discussion of environmental health and the impact it has on our human health. Um, and I think we're going to need to pay an increasing amount of attention to this in Australia over the next decade. Um, it'd be good to have some funding and research in the area as well. almost an assumption that if you throw three experts into a room and ask them to, to address a common challenge, then they're going to know how to do that. Dr Alex Bomba is a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Transdisciplinary Innovation at the University of Technology, Sydney. He says this siloed effect, described by both David and Anna Greta, is due to a number of factors. Across all sorts of different disciplines and areas of expertise, there's historically been this siloed effect where um, experts in particular fields tend to stay within their particular fields and talk to other experts in those fields and um, not cross over in between. There's a, quite a few drivers um, within the, the university system and the broader research system that can tend to reinforce that siloed nature of knowledge. One of them is the way that research funding tends to be allocated. Um, that can tend to, to push people to stay within their own areas. For example, in Australia, a lot of research funding comes through the Australian Research Council, and they've identified this as a, a challenge that they're facing to, to properly analyse and recognise interdisciplinary research. But the way it normally works is that if you put in a, a grant application to, to do some research through them, uh, it'll get assessed by a panel of experts uh, and they have different disciplinary panels. So if you're a health expert uh, looking to do some health research, that will go to a panel of other health experts who will be uh, have experience in that area and be able to evaluate your proposal. Or if you're an environmental scientist, you'd put in a proposal that goes to a panel of other environmental scientists who are qualified to, to evaluate it. But what, where the challenges arise, if you get a health uh, expert and an environmental scientist working together and they come up with a collaborative project, the system doesn't really know what to do with that kind of project. So it can send it to one panel or the other, but the chances are that there'll be people on that panel who won't feel qualified or won't recognise the contribution that it might be making in the other field. So there's a chance that it'll get um, scored down. And this kind of plays out even at the strategic advice level within universities. You often get advised not to put in interdisciplinary projects because they're less likely to get up. Alex says the career pressure of getting research published as an academic can deter some from pursuing projects that won't neatly fall into their industry's reputable journal. And then of course you've got institutional structures in universities that traditionally they're set up with faculties uh, and those faculties are based on the disciplines or the expertise or the fields of research. Uh, so that creates automatically some institutional barriers that can be difficult to cross. And then especially as universities move more towards 
viewing um, students as customers who are paying fees. Uh, therefore, that can almost create a pressure where particular faculties try to hang on to their students because the fees come through to them and they don't necessarily want their students to go into other faculties and to learn other disciplines because that might mean some of the fees go there instead and it doesn't go back to them. So even within specific universities, you can have those pressures that, that work against people collaborating. On top of that, there are cultural norms. And there is actually um, a need to, to educate and to train and to have a process that you follow to understand how you do transdisciplinarity in a sense. Uh, it is more than just throwing those three people into a room. You need to think about the terminology that you use, how you translate knowledge across different disciplines, because uh, often the, the language that we use and the way we uh, think about knowledge is quite specific to a particular field. And people get into the habit of talking in certain ways and thinking in certain ways because they're always talking with other people who are experts in the same thing. Uh, so there is that need often to, to pull back before you begin trying to take on the challenge, but to actually pull back and think carefully and to talk about your assumptions and talk about the norms and the underlying worldviews that influence the way you approach challenges from the beginning. By 2050, more than 80 million people living across much of the West can expect a 57% increase in the number of smoke waves that shroud a community. A major area of epidemiological research is now concerned with the consequences of being exposed to large immediate doses of bushfire smoke or chronic exposure at lower levels. An increase in smoke waves could see more like Benjamin scrambling for puffers they haven't used in years, and for some, drastically grind life as they know it to a halt. There's all these awful tragedies uh, that are causing death on a scale that I, I, I wouldn't really think possible. You, you know, when you think about uh, the government and medical institutions, you think, well, they have procedures, they have everything in hand, you know, to protect people from these sorts of accidents or incidents. Uh, but it's pretty clear that, that they, uh, especially in the case of the Black Summer uh, bushfires, that they do not. They do not have things entirely in hand. The Royal Commission into the National Natural Disaster Arrangements has received almost 2,000 public submissions on the 2019 to 2020 bushfire season. Among the recommendations are widespread access to air quality education, using consistent terminology to describe air quality, a revision of building standards to protect those most vulnerable, and financial assistance from health departments to ensure equal access to air purifiers. David says adapting to the coronavirus pandemic isn't too dissimilar to what the future reality of adapting to bushfire seasons will be like. You know, we are going into an uncertain future, but we've certainly frittered away the opportunity just to, you know, stop emitting carbon. We're now, you know, well and truly into the adaptation step. You know, we probably won't have summer holidays in the same way we used to. Um, Christmas will probably be actually, ironically, a time where we gather indoors because it's just going to be too hot and smoky and too dangerous. And, you know, we'll want to move our holidays out into the cooler and safer months. You know, air cleaners, smartphone apps, warnings, safe air places, changing at the drop of a hat. No, we're not gonna do the marathon, too much smoke. We're not gonna do this, too much smoke. We're not gonna have a rock festival, too dangerous, too much smoke. 
all of those things are really, you know, now on the table. And we've shown that we can live with that because of the virus. Because of the virus, we stopped going to work. You know, we radically changed our our behaviour and, and, and our radical change of behaviour was just a pure adaptation response to uh, a disease for which we had no immunity or treatment. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Carcatzel. Thanks for your company.